This is the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast. So we are back on the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast, and this week we remedy a uh, a huge, I guess, well, one of us atones for a huge, huge, huge disappointment. That's uh, Dr. Budmar, who uh, said he would be on the Arrival Podcast, yet failed to be there. He did not arrive. The night before the podcast, I ended up spending time with my youngest daughter, Mary, which I wasn't expecting to do that evening. So I couldn't watch Mad Max Fury Road with my two-year-old. Hmm, interesting, interesting. I thought that would be the time you would really want to introduce the Mad Max mythos to your child, but, you know... Try, you know, I'm not going to interfere with another man's decisions about his children. <laughs> so that, so that's the that's the dulcet tones of the master Bo Bo Bonner, and uh, well, that, Steve, oh, there's another there's another piece here. Wait, because I, I one dynamic that I've sensed on the podcast now is don't the master and the Tin Man have a little bit of a competitive dynamic or something? Oh yeah, I they, saw on Facebook that he felt like he needed to rouse himself up and make a defense. And I have not yet begun to attack. Is all I want you to tell him. Yeah, See, they are. They for, are. I think me, they're very I similar. Feel, so. Okay. Oh, I can feel pang, I can feel pangs of guilt when I'm on the podcast because I'm guessing some of your fan base misses the Tim Man's antics when he's when he's absent. It's really funny. We have uh, we uh, I have I'm the Catholic movie guy. Have two fan bases. One is the type of fan base that likes the. <laughs> Budmar, Bo Bonner, Brewmaster General podcast, and the other is the fan ma- fan base that tunes in for the Tim Man podcast. I think that fan base doesn't really care about the movie being discussed at all, but merely <laughs> but merely the the bro speak, uh, hot ratings, Pope Francis updates, uh, etc. So I think it's I think we got a nice niche. We're lifting one group up. And bringing the other group down, and somewhere we'll meet in the juicy middle, which is where I reside, the Catholic movie guy. And well, I wanted to mo- really apologize to all of your listeners before we even get started for sounding like a sweaty, dying water oxen <laughs> last time. The tr- I mean, I am not in shape, but the robots really conspired against me. I, I, I sounded like one of the characters from Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, which is our movie for today, a fitting seg- segue. So, uh, you know, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, it, was, it was critically acclaimed. He was an Oscar nominee for 2015, did not win. But I wouldn't say it's like the first movie I thought about discussing when I started the Cali Movie Guy podcast. I don't know what segment of my audience uh, would enjoy such a movie, but here we are. Why, uh, why exactly is this movie worth well, You know what, before we get into why we're discussing it, why don't you both uh, give give us somebody give us a plot summary, such as it is? Well, a long time ago, there was a man named Mel Gibson, who even before he was the glint in his father's breakaway Catholic Church eye. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> Mad Max, of course, is this very old title. I don't know how much of you guys watched it growing up or not, but certainly it was very different than a lot of the 80s stuff and kind of fed into what eventually would become Blade Runner and a lot of the sort of, you know, apocalyptic future movies. So it it lay dormant for a while, and then everybody very excitingly talked about how this new Mad Max was coming along, and I think I was one of the many doubters who thought this movie would be terrible, why are they choosing this one, but in every way was surprised. So, I don't know, but what do you want to start out as talking about the, the sort of um, 
plot of the main points of this movie. Yeah, the movie is directed by George Miller, who's known as like one of the great action film directors of all time. And I actually, you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist household, so wasn't allowed to watch certain movies. I haven't seen the Mad Maxes from the 80s, but this supposedly is a great homage to those films. And this one, the main character, Max, it's follow, it, uh, it follows a nuclear holocaust, right? And he's I don't know been, if they've ever told exactly what it is. It's Australia. That's half of it, let's be honest. <laughs> the world's a desert wasteland, and Max has been captured by the war boys, who are the army of Amor and Joe, this particularly deplorable, scary character who will haunt your dreams after you've seen the film. A handsome man. A handsome man. What's that? He wears, like, this skull mask by which he breathes? Yes. <laughs> Evidently so much that if you pull it off, you pull off part of his face and he dies. So I would say it's necessary medical equipment. <laughs> yeah, he's so, got a Bane, a Bane vibe going on. He's like an aged Bane. Which is interesting, because Tom Hardy, who played Bane in the Batman films, is Mad Max. But what really kicks off the plot is Imperator Furiosa, who's played by Charlize Theron. She's delivering a fuel shipment for um, Immortan Joe, but she veers off course, so she takes his precious goods elsewhere to pawn them off. And Immortan Joe and his army follow her hot pursuit. But where where Max fits into all of this is he's keeping one of the war boys alive. He's a... Uh, He's like a battery of blood for this war boy, Nux. And so they strap him to the front of one of the war vehicles. And, and Max is part of this big battle scene. He starts off just as sort of like a, a blood bag for one of the guys who's fighting. Right. And the, uh, and the uh, precious cargo that, that uh, Charlize Theron Furiosa is stealing is essentially Joe's five wives, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. So she's got the fuel, and then the wives are hidden underneath the tankard. Right. And part of the whole thing with this is, uh, you know, one of the great things about the Internet, because there's so many guys, is uh, <laughs> there's a complete sub-community that tries to make of the world of Mad Max like the nerds in Lord of the Rings have. And, I mean, I'll give it to the nerds of the Lord of the Rings. I've taught classes on Tolkien, and you can go to their web portals or mystical lands of webinar or whatever they call it, and they have, like, really detailed information about Tolstoy, or uh, Tolkien, excuse me. Wow, but, Tolstoy. Uh, yeah, 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 Tolkien. <laughs> but uh, the Mad Max nerds have tried to do that, and evidently there's all sorts of weird stories about how Immortan Joe became known as Immortan and not Immortal, you know, because yeah. English in Australia. And uh, I don't know where they get it, frankly, because it's not in the other movies. I mean, so I don't know if this is like heavy fanfic or yeah. what's going on. I think it's such a thin reed you can build a, a giant tree around it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not exactly right. Tolkien level of uh, story going on there. Well, I think that's exactly part of it. I mean, and like, so to finish it off, they leave... Uh, Furiosa has this idea that, like, there's this beautiful um, Edenic paradise where she was come, where she came from and was stolen from the land of many mothers. She gets there. There are a bunch of old haggard biker ladies, but there is no green uh, Eden. And so then they decide, well, the best place left is actually um, where Immortan Joe is because there's this waterfall that he basically um, – keeps to himself and only gives sporadically to the people so they drive right back into the gauntlet and uh you know get back and they kill Immortan joe and they take over and there's going to be this idea that um the city they're from will actually have a new dawn of 
humane leadership. Now, the funny thing about this is I really think the people got together and they're like, how do we make like the most awesome in-cars action sequence ever and then come up with a second reason to <laughs> reprise it all in one movie? Yeah. And not only is it awesome, but it's I'm totally okay with all of it because one of the biggest problems that I have with Oscar bait movies is when they're so worried, they're like, oh, we need to make you know this like awesome movie that hits all the stops and does all these things. And this was like so many of us need to do in Lent, a movie that took a hard look at itself and said, we do not need to go over hither and yon. We just need to do this twice, have the big driving scene twice, and we will attain the virtue possible in our plot. Yeah, so I mean, it is a, it is a, is it, it is quite the spectacle. It's spectacular. Um, I mean, the, the, it's like the the best car chase in the history of car chases, yeah. and it's the, you know, it, it's fantastic. But let me ask you this, okay? You, uh, you suggested that we do this this particular film. There are, I mean, it's incredibly violent. It's a lot of disturbing images. There's some brief but but full nudity. What is it about this movie that you think is is worth viewing? You know, if we look at it from a Catholic perspective of the true, the beautiful, the good. Well, there's this part in the Book of Numbers. No, I'm actually. Kidding. No, <laughs> I'm being serious. Um, I, no, I will say this about uh, the Old Testament because uh, I've been reading it um, for Lent. People might not remember how brutal that book is. Now, I'm not saying that it's a guy with a flame-throwing guitar, you know, driving through the wilderness. But I do think there's a way which this movie, much like Cormac McCarthy, which, you know, you've, you guys have talked about a movie of Cormac McCarthy. We've all talked about Cormac McCarthy and maybe how we would see someone so violent having a rede redeeming value. There's this way in which the movie shows sort of like grotesque depravity that when you kind of buy into the world that it shows you can start to show actual real humanization and i think bud um, bud was talking about this before and i think bud has a really good point about this well as we mentioned with the plot summary the setting is a post-apocalyptic scenario and i think for miller this presents him with the opportunity to show to kind of show humanity at a clean slate, and it's it's not a pretty picture. So, I mean, it, it's kind of like... It's like brute, brute nature, right? Brute nature, human history starting over, a human history that's already been burdened by sin. But what you see with some of the characters is that they're almost, they're almost subhuman. Like, Max, at the beginning of the film, doesn't talk very much at all. Part of it is he's got a mask attached to his face. But during his first interactions with Furiosa... She wants to know his name, and of course, like in the biblical literature, to know someone's name is to know something vitally important about them, right? And so she wants to know his name, and he's reticent to share it. And then as things go on, their relationship grows. I like how the, the movie maker didn't move it into like this romantic thing, but they start to develop a dependency upon each other, and Max becomes kind of humanized. When he does start talking more, at first he's very adverse to hope, like he wants to kind of kill the hope out of the, the group that he's helping to save because he doesn't think they're going to make it. Mm -hmm. But it becomes very important that, uh, so like Bo said, the, the troop turns around and they head back towards important Joe's and Morton Joe's city. It becomes very important that they have a reason to hope. And it's, you know, like with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of goods, you always hear like 
the base level, like our needs, our food, water, and shelter, you see in the film that even if you have those things, there could be a certain emptiness to life. Like even the most, um, most of the debased characters in the film really have this yearning for a transcendence, whether that's giving their life to a cause that's greater than themselves or, I don't know, like finding meaning by uh, by earning a Morton Joe's approval or whatever it happens to be. So there's some really subtle themes that are worked into what it, what truly is like this spectacular spectacle uh, action film. I think that this is important too for, for Nuck himself, the, the war boy that makes good. In many ways, it's like your classic boy meets girl that has been enslaved by his boss at the end of the world. And they We've all love. been there. We've all, We've been, all there. been there. Um, That's how I met my uh, wife. <laughs> she'll like that show, i'm yeah. leaving that in she'll like it um but i think that there's a way in which it's kind of crazy that by making a world so burnt to a crisp as it were it really does make this tenderness which i'm with bud they don't do they're not heavy-handed about it they don't throw in sexual tension or like any sort of real romance in many ways it's like an eighth grade puppy love but mm-hmm. in that world it's actually really telling because everything else is so stark to see any sort of human tenderness at all so this this war boy goes from this like insane you know war like tribal religion of just sheer insanity it has to do with chrome and gas and oil it's like an it, like someone did a lot of cocaine in the 80s driving their t-bird and invented a religion um and they go from that to this this kid who's willing to make a sacrifice to save everybody else and it's because of the craziness of the world that that really shines through i think right it's it's like these uh it's like a lot of dystopian fiction where you know the the blank slate of the world is like a blank slate for human human nature and human learning and and all those things i agree with all that um I did want to comment, though, because, I mean, a lot of people have read this in sort of a feminist critique way. I don't really remember feminist critique. I was an English major. I tried to forget a lot of it. But uh, I think it's it's kind of overstated, the feminist angle. But certainly there is a theme of not treating women as objects and property, okay? Right. At the same time, though, they are all skimpily uh, dressed, scantily clad, and there's kind of an eye candy, have your cake and eat it too thing here, you know. Uh, so what, what did you make of the, the feminist angle here? Um, Bud, you want to go first? You you were a big uh, feminist in your uh, your graduate work, right? Yeah, I'm trying to reach back to some of that literature I engaged closely in college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I haven't really thought this through all the way, but to me, there seemed to be a similar motif that you see in the movie Children of Men, mm-hmm. where in our have you time read the, have day, you read the book? Have you read the book? I have not. Oh, it's a failing. Go ahead, continue. But I, I, I like the movie a lot. But in our day the and age, awesome. you know. Like, Bo and I, we hear from our students, like, in high school and things, they get drilled into their heads, like, overpopulation, overpopulation. And we sort of take for granted the gift that mothers give to the world, you know. In this in this scenario, in both Children of Men and in this movie, where humanity's situation is much more precarious, you realize, like, just how significant. And, you know, okay, I'll be I'm being inducted as a Knight of Columbus, so I'll go knight errant here. But, like, the sort of... Um, what word am I looking? But what's the the knight is to be valiant, chivalrous. Chivalrous, like, um, what sort of like heroic calling it is to defend 
women in, in certain circumstances when they're being threatened, you know, by uh, the kind of forces that you're talking about, Steve. You know, and look, I, I know where this is heading. There are people who read this as like, I mean, just to be very frank, that it's like the women that Furiosa comes from is like this group of lesbians and that men have ruined the world and it's this fight between men and women. I really thought that read, because I'd read that before I watched the movie for the first time, I thought that read was completely heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. It, you could subtly read it that way, sure, but a lot of it is more played to effect, right? That there's these tough old ladies that uh, have, are more than willing to shoot a bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, they reminded me of, like, great ants that I knew in Oklahoma that have pushed come to shove. <laughs> I didn't have any great ants that looked like that, I gotta tell you. No, I, no, I did. I mean, I remember, like, I've seen <laughs> pictures of, like, because, I mean, like, if you've been out, like, on the farm all day, you get that, like, sort of those tough, leathery faces and everything. Yeah. But, I mean, I like the idea of, like, you know, one of them is a keeper of seeds. It's not, like, going too far over, but it is an interesting thing, right? Like, the the the, the girls are, like, if they're knocking someone out of the – or they're yelling at someone, they're like, who killed the world, right? And, you know, again, people can take the environmental uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, angle on this and drive it too far. But I think this is sort of like a, you know, an overboard spectacular in the Aristotle's way to say, you know, if you treat Earth like these people are doing it, I mean, legitimately, you can ask, is this, you know, the world that we want to live in? So I think that you can go nuts and read this movie how you want. I don't think George Miller, um, even if he meant that, he didn't overdo it. And that's why it's still a very watchable, entertaining. And I actually think in the end, good movie. Uh, in that regard. Yeah, so, I agree. Could, could I ask you guys a question about the film that I've been kind of mulling over? Sure. This this involves somewhat of a spoiler, Steve. That's why I'm prefacing it. Well, the people have been forewarned. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> you know at the end of the film where they make it back and and they take over a Morton Joe's colony and Furiosa sends to, like, at the top of... He, he's built these, like, dunes or whatever and at the top of them it is kind of a verdant garden right mm-hmm. but during the climactic scene max has one glance back into furiosa's eyes and then he blends back into the crowd why do you think he like why do you think at the end of the film miller has him blend back into humanity like that 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 actually is a motif taken from every other um mad max that's like a an homage to the end of all the other mad max movies there's this sense that Mad Max is like this guy who, you know, the the end of the world is driven crazy, and obviously you keep seeing like flashbacks of his dead children and stuff like this. Uh, but so, you know, and in, in a lot of the movies, he starts out sort of like self-centered and, like you said, only worried about himself. But in the end, like when the occasion calls for it, he will he'll rise. And I think in all three of the movies, but definitely Thunderdome, and there's one of the other ones where he's basically offered like a co-reign of the kingdom and he always turns it back down to fade back into humanity. So whether that's just like making an homage to all the other Mad Maxes or if this is some big philosophical point, um, I, I think that's sort of up to the viewer. But that is something where if you've seen the other Mad Maxes, that's kind of uh, the shtick of Mad Max. So he's he's like not power hungry or he's right. the everyman fighting on behalf of the good or whatever. Right, and and that gets even weirder when, like, the first Mad Max, it's not, like, complete... You know, like, each success of one is more, like, Blade Runner, Brave New World, crazy, 
anarchic apocalypse. The first one just kind of seems like there's a gas shortage in Australia and the bikers are mad. Uh, mm. uh, but but each one, yeah, it's like the people who, through abuse of power, you know, it's offered to Mad Max and he refuses it, knowing that it would be sort of like too much of a temptation to him. I think that's sort of one of the themes. So so since since Bud is uh, kind of throwing out something, I want to throw out something that uh, I didn't consult you gentlemen on beforehand, but that I, I was struck by watching this. Ruh-roh. Yeah, here we go. So this movie is not a zombie movie, but I feel like the, uh, the war boys are basically zombies, the people who follow Joe and... You know, the desolate landscape, it fits nicely with this zombie fad of the last ten years with, you know, redoing the George Romero movies, Night of the Living Dead, The Walking Dead, all that stuff. What what do you think, I mean, you know, because all these are more or less allegorical, but what what are these, what is this zombie fad or this fad of, like, dehumanized humanity? What, what are, why is this such a cultural thing lately? Um, oh, you're going to have to take this one because, um... Zombie movies keep me up at night, so... Oh, okay. I think um, there's... Well, do you... The, the, the big theory is in English department, Steve. Uh, you did English and linguistics? Like, I'm about I was to a linguistics uh, concentration, English major, minor in philosophy, religion. Wow, you were... You were about as boring as I was in I'm quite undergrad. The, quite the scholar. Yeah, well, so, of course, in English classes, even when we were in undergrad... It was like any, you know, zombie movies were about innate American fears. So like all the early ones supposedly were about racism and stuff like this. Whatever that might be, I think that when you talk about the latest sort of run of zombie movies or the of the undead, if you want to throw in vampires as well, I think part of it is this sort of neurosis about we can live longer than we ever have. Mm. Um, just sheerly by you know the fact that we don't have to like fight off barbarians at the door every day but then also medicine and everything like this but then you like think about like alzheimer's and you think about dementia or you think about like debilitating illness and then you add to that the sort of dissatisfaction with our spiritual and interior lives that many of us don't really have this idea of a higher purpose to live for and then you throw on that this idea one you know people worrying about society falling apart and could i survive if it all did and would that really test my mettle as a human being i think that all of those things sort of wrap up into the zombie or the sort of zombified mind of the war boys as being this way of saying in the face of everything falling apart could you find a purpose and certain movies do this to better or worse effect but i think if if you're going to go with the zombie read of a of, of this movie, then the idea is exactly like Bud was, was pointing out is like this, this telos that keeps driving everything forward. Like, well, let's go see the land of many mothers when it's not there. Well, let's go back through the gauntlet in order to start over and begin again. Um, that's, that's what people are looking for. They, they, they think they might live forever and for no good point. Yeah. And so they're worried about becoming zombies. Yeah, that that's kind of, that's kind of your second, the second aspect I think is more than this like fear of, you know, maybe that was the case in the 60s when you had the, the Cold War and the, the fears of nuclear holocaust and racism and civil rights and all that stuff. But I think today it's more of a, yeah, we're, we're just, you know, you wake up, you, you, you go to work, you come back home, you have your little, you know, you have your self-pleasure time with your uh, favorite technological devices or whatever. And it's like, 
we're all in this together. We know that. We're all similar, but we don't really know why we're all in it together or what it is or what it's for. And I think that's why all these these desolate landscapes and uh, people that just go through the motions without really thinking, I think it's 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 clear that modern man is struggling for some sort of a purpose. And I think you see with Mad Max, you know, it, it's it's not that Mad Max is this, like, individual hero because at first like bud very insightfully pointed out he almost has no personality at the beginning of this movie he's like this subhuman animal but when mad max in the end decides there's a purpose worth worth fighting for it's not this sort of zombified one this one where i'm going to join either the hive mind or this one where i let myself go it's this one that has this sort of deep humanity about it so it's not for his sake that he ultimately fights as hard as he does going either way but there's that sort of self-sacrifice that um you know and there, there's this weird way in which he's trying to make restitution or redemption for whatever happened with his family that we never fully know why he blames himself the way he does you see this you see this desire on the part of different characters to be part of a larger narrative and to be embedded in a history even one of the most um grotesque figures in the film um, i think his name is rictus mm. he ride uh, he runs the turret on top of a more joe's vehicle if i remember correctly yeah at one point uh one of the women who joe's impregnated she gets fatally injured and they try to save the baby but they're unable to and rictus who again is very almost subhuman um he wants to know like the gender of the child when they tell him it was a boy he has this like triumphant like I had a baby brother, like this perfect baby boy. And you see, like, even for someone like him, this kind of, like, desire to have this intergenerational connection um, in, a, in a very, like, dire, uh, seemingly bleakless circumstance. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, exactly. So I think it, it's, like, a spectacular, it's one of the most spectacular action movies ever made. And I do think that, you know, we've we've talked about as much as we can about extrapolating meaning into it, but it is more meaningful than just your your garden variety action film, and I think that's why, for an action film, it's like you know the platonic form of that almost. So yeah. I think it's worthy of watching. It certainly is something that you you're never gonna get bored during it. It's no arrival for sure, right, Bo? Right, exactly. Exactly. So so gentlemen, each of you, what uh, what's your final rating out of ten? I'm going to give it eight Furiosa hands, robot hands. I I really do think that, if like you said, that as far as like mel welding an action movie to about as good of a plot you can without making it boring, it pretty much pulls it off. So I'm not going to act like it's one of the best movies of all time, but a solid eight. What say you, bud? Yeah, I think I'm going to go eight as well, but... Um, for context, like, I'm not a big action movie guy, and I really enjoyed it. I feel like it's almost the anti-Michael Bay film. For, like, Michael Bay, it's like, well, my audience is getting bored, so I'm just going to throw in an explosion. I felt like everything here was carefully crafted, and I was just, I was pleasantly surprised that the pacing and, I don't know if I would call it character development, but I feel like as a viewer, you do develop this kind of emotional concern for the well-being of the characters, even though you don't know much of their past or I, the, the dialogue is not really, you know, 
highly developed, but um, I just felt like it was a carefully crafted action film, and if if you're looking for a movie in this genre, I feel like it's the one to pull off the shelf. It might be one of the best-paced movies ever made, actually. I mean, I'm impressed with, like, what what he... I wonder what he all put on the cutting floor, because he the judiciousness of, like, when he makes scene changes for what might seem like a dumb... I mean, just a little bit too much more or too little, and it would be a dumb action movie. He really mm-hmm. hit the sweet pot, spot on this one. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I, there's there's the one scene where I think it's gratuitous nudity. I mean, it makes... It makes it's for effect, but still kind of gratuitous. So I'm going to accept that out from my review. But I mean, as far as an action movie, I just I can't imagine a better one being done on, on a purely, like we all said, spectacle scale. So I'm going to give it nine dune buggies out of, oh, nine, wow, out of yeah. ten. I think it's, pretty, it was pretty, it's, it's incredibly entertaining, and it's one of those movies, like uh, Bo and I were talking about before the podcast started, it's like you see it on cable, you're just going to watch it. That's how it's going to be. Agreed. Well, I'm glad we reviewed it, and I do think you're right. Like, Caveat Spector, if I said that right, is, I mean, it is a grotesque movie. I don't think it's as bloody as, like, I mean, it's not Quentin Tarantino. No. But it is, it's the violence movie. didn't really bother me, but there's just disturbing imagery. And it's Agreed. So, uh, you know, make your decision, and uh, it's probably not for the church ladies, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a guy movie, for sure. Yes, very much so. All right, so now that we've uh, wrapped up the movie, let's get to the shots fired. I want you each to do like a diss track to the Tin Man. Go. Um, I think Tin Man secretly loves Mike Matheny. <laughs> oh, there can be no more devastating critique, bud. Tin Man, I really, I want to put you through a lie detector test and and see if you really think Nebraska's uniforms are orange, or if this is just your way of trolling me. I'd oh, love to bud. talk about it over a road trip to Memphis sometime. Bud, <laughs> bud, you poor, you poor simple corn husker. There is orange as the evening sun. We're out. Goodbye. <laughs>